June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. CBS News reported this week that a letter came out from the CDC telling states to be ready to distribute a vaccine for COVID-19 by the 1st of November, just a couple of days before the presidential election. CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman outside the CDC tells us about it. For starters, that letter came out on August 27th. That's the same day that President Trump gave his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention, a speech in which he teased that a vaccine could come out by the end of the year. The worry here is that this plan may have more to do with politics than with science. Now, that said, many health experts agree that having a distribution plan in place is essential, even if the vaccine needs more work. Whether we end up with a vaccine sooner or later, we need those plans, we need those logistics in place. Dr. Jesse Goodman is the former chief scientist at the FDA. He oversaw several vaccine approval and distribution efforts. Goodman is concerned that the new letter from the CDC did not come sooner. We have safety, effectiveness, quality, good logistics and distribution system, a safety monitoring system, and we don't screw up the trust. A safe and effective vaccine can save lives. But that's a tall order to come up with in the remaining time before then. Dr. Goodman worries that political pressure on the FDA could lead the public to doubt its safety and effectiveness. But both FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn and Dr. Anthony Fauci said no vaccine would be approved or granted emergency authorization without sound data and science behind it. I would not be comfortable with a vaccine unless it was shown in a clinical trial clearly to be safe and effective. The nation's top health officials are urging Americans to remain disciplined, to avoid behaviors that led cases to spike following Memorial Day and the 4th of July. On a trip across the Midwest, Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force gave this stern warning. When I say socially distanced, it means at all times, including with family members. We are seeing that crowded neighborhood events, including backyard barbecues, are currently one of the primary spreaders of virus. Berks's tour comes as several states report spikes in new COVID cases, including Iowa. The White House recently flagged Iowa as having the highest rate per capita of new COVID cases. And there is also a spike in South Dakota, which recently hosted the Sturgis motorcycle rally. And that event has been linked to almost 300 new cases in a dozen states. So that leaves us with a question. Might a vaccine be pushed out quickly for political reasons before it's established as safe? 
The FDA confirmed to CBS News this week that it might approve distribution of a vaccine before clinical safety trials are completed. CBS News chief medical correspondent Dr. John LaPook asked the head of the FDA whether science is taking a backseat to politics. FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn insists the agency is not losing its independence when it comes to making a vaccine against COVID-19 available. The public is concerned about the politicization of the process. President Trump tweeted about a deep state at the FDA. There are people in the medical community who are being critical of the whole process. I can tell you our decision at FDA will not be made on any other criteria than the science and data associated with these clinical trials. Dr. Hahn says, depending on that data, it's possible a vaccine could be available by election day under an emergency use authorization program before a phase three trial is completely finished. Have you felt pressured politically to make a decision one way or another? I have not been pressured politically to make an incorrect decision. How about pressured to make what you think is a correct decision? I I mean, there's been pressure throughout this pandemic, John. I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that um, would be kidding themselves. Some vaccine manufacturers have said they could start delivering vaccines by the end of the year. If you felt pressured to make a vaccine available before it's ready, what would you do? We will not make that decision on the basis of politics. That's a promise. Would that promise go so far as to say that if you are pressured to make that kind of decision that you don't agree with, you would resign? I think all options are on the table with respect. I hope we won't be in that position. Dr. Hahn says the public should have confidence in agency guidance, which recommends a vaccine be at least 50 percent effective. But even if some vaccine doses are made available in the fall, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb says widespread use is not expected until next year. So let's address this concern about a virus rush to market. And to do that, CBS This Morning co-host Tony DeCopel got an exclusive interview with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Secretary Azar, we are at such an incredibly crucial moment in the fight against the coronavirus. But we've got to deal with the reality as well here. Huge majorities of people, more than three out of four Americans, are worried about the safety of this vaccine. And they're worried that politics is leading it, not science. I'm hoping that you can alleviate some people's concerns, some people's fears. So let me start with why do you think November 1st is a a date that could be met and how likely is it? We're making historic progress towards a vaccine. We have three vaccine candidates in that late stage phase three clinical trials with tens of thousands of people getting enrolled. When that data comes in, and we don't know when that data will come in, it's going to depend on actually the rate of infection in the communities where that vaccine and its placebo are being administered. When the data come in, that'll be reviewed by a data and safety monitoring board. That's an independent board. And then that data at the appropriate time will go to the FDA. These decisions will be driven by by, by the standards of science and evidence and FDA's gold standards. Can you see how people might be concerned? I think it's very irresponsible how people are trying to politicize notions of delivering a vaccine to the American people. We already have a significant challenge in this country with vaccine hesitancy and efforts to undermine confidence in, 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 the va- in, in a vaccine that would come uh, hurt in terms of people being willing to take a vaccine once it comes through. We are seeing historic advances. We, we are literally in phase three clinical trials on three vaccines months from the initial development yeah. of those vaccines. So let's talk about uh, distribution. Can you confirm at this point that the two companies, Vaccine A and Vaccine B, it sounds like uh, Pfizer and Moderna, is that who we're talking about here? 
Well, we've got Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are the ones that are in the middle of the phase three trials. AstraZeneca's Oxford vaccine entered phase three trials uh, earlier this week. Uh, so I think you can draw your conclusions okay. on that. That's helpful. But uh, but at this point, uh, we it's going to depend on how we see the data coming in and when we see the data coming. But God forbid, we are right now producing. We are producing millions of doses of commercial grade vaccine. And God forbid we get great data and it comes out of the data and safety monitoring board and the FDA finds that it meets their standards and we aren't ready to distribute. So we need to be ready for all contingencies and that's why the CDC is doing this. We should be celebrating the fact that it's even a potentiality that we could have approved vaccine yeah. ready in the next the, month or two. The, the, the worst tragedy would be you have an effective vaccine but people don't take it because they don't trust the politics. So I'm curious about this date November 1st. Is it just just a coincidence that it's two days before the election. Where does it come from exactly? Uh, you'd have to ask Dr. Messonnier because that came out of the career people at CDC working to do the planning here. Um, it has nothing to do with elections. This has to do with delivering safe, effective vaccines to the American people as quickly as possible and saving people's lives. Uh, whether it's whether it's October 15th, whether it's November 1st, whether it's November 15th, it's all about saving lives, but meeting the standards of, of FDA's standards of safety and efficacy, nobody involved in this process is ever going to compromise on making sure that a product someone puts in their body is safe and effective. Now, to be clear, Dr. Monsef Slawi, who President Trump put in charge of his vaccine development program, Operation Warp Speed, says the development of a vaccine far enough along for even emergency authorization by the 1st of November is very unlikely, but not impossible. He's talking about just two vaccines that could even make that extremely unlikely date, the one from Pfizer and the one from Moderna. Most vaccine developers say early next year is more likely, and even that is warp speed in the world of vaccine development, where the usual timeline is four years. And even if a vaccine were to be approved by November 1st, it would not be available for most Americans until the spring. And by the way, we'll have more on vaccine testing later in the show from Dr. John LaPook. One other thing of note, though many people are making a point of mainly older people dying of COVID, there is new concern whether young people who had it will live to get old. There are a number of reports from college athletic physicians that show some athletes who had COVID now suffer from myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Here's something that may be changing forever, college admissions. This week, an Alameda County, California Superior Court judge ruled that the University of California, which had already stopped considering SAT and ACT scores for admission, must stop prospective students from even submitting those scores for any kind of consideration. Now, many schools have been moving away from the test. Nanette Asimov is higher education editor and acting health editor as well for the San Francisco Chronicle during the COVID-19 crisis. And interestingly... Those two things come together in this story. Nanette, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I am fine. First thing I should point out to our audience is that we are covering this as a trend. This is not a nationwide precedent, and it hasn't even gone that far up in the California court system yet. But what was the ruling and why? Yes, this was an injunction. In other words, the Superior Court judge told the University of California that they have to stop immediately from using any 
Hess from allowing any of uh, its nine undergraduate campuses to use the test to uh, decide on admissions. And um, the University of California is deciding whether they want to fight back. And so what this does is put the University of California um, in with, oh, I mean, think, I think there's uh, about 1,500 or more colleges across the country that are realizing that the SAT and the ACT may not be the best way to equitably decide who should attend their schools. And when I said that these stories come together, uh, there's a couple of things going on. Yes, 1,500 other schools, as you said, have dropped the tests altogether. 1,200 nationwide have dropped the standardized testing requirement for admissions for fall of 2021 because of the coronavirus pandemic, because so many testing sites are closed. And in this particular case, it came up that disabled kids who need testing sites that have accommodations for them very often don't have a place anywhere near them to go to. Exactly. And so that is exactly how the uh, testing equity situation coincides with the pandemic. Because so in May, the University of California suspended test, but said that uh, campuses could use it optionally. And then they were going to suspend it two years from now. And the judge said, you have to do it immediately. You have to suspend it immediately because disabled students won't, as you said, they won't be able to find a place to take the test. And the judge cited the case of one student in particular, a, a high school graduate with learning disability named Gary, who needs accommodations. And he's always taken tests with accommodations. Now, accommodations can be something like a little bit of a longer uh, time to take a test. And they, because so many testing sites have closed, um, a place that could accommodate a student like Gary and many other students with disabilities could not be found easily for him. And so he had decided that he was just going to not apply to college this year. He was going to postpone uh, his application. And so this was an example to the judge of what could be replicated you know, for thousands of students. And so he said, it's just not fair to have this happen during the pandemic. So no tests, uh, no tests may be allowed. The interesting thing about all of the complaints that the SAT and the ACT caused discrimination or discriminatory themselves is one of the reasons schools went to it was they thought it might figure a way around discrimination. Since every high school and every teacher give different grades for different kinds of work, the idea of these tests was to find out, well, what do kids actually know to make up for schools that may have passed kids for just showing up, teachers that may have given minority kids lower grades because they just didn't like them, or just differences in expectations of kids from one school, one neighborhood to the next. But that just doesn't seem to have actually happened. It doesn't seem to have actually happened. In fact, there's a lawsuit against the University of California and what the plaintiffs, low-income students, uh, students of color and disabled students said is that it, it, it is completely unfair. It, it is not an objective means of determining what a student knows. And the reason for that is because um, students who can afford to uh, take test prep classes. And so they become very adept at taking these tests. So it's not really so much um, what a kid knows, but how well of a test taker they learn to become. And books have been written about this. This has been true for, for decades. This test is almost 100 years old. And uh, that's the SAT. The, S the ACT is closer to 60, but this is the same deal. So um, students have come around to saying, you know what, this is just not fair. Um, 
maybe this is a reason why we aren't getting into schools and good schools as often as wealthier white students, and maybe why uh, we're at a disadvantage in, in all kinds of ways um, to have access to these schools. You know, it's interesting. In order to make up for the fact that wealthier students can afford tutors and all of these things, the College Board and Khan Academy partnered to offer free official SAT practice, reporting that 20 hours of practice resulted in an average 115-point increase from the PSAT to the SAT. That is twice the average gain without the practice. The thing is, that startlingly huge number, I think, probably backfired on the college board, which makes the SAT because it proves that 20 hours of prep is more important than 12 hours of education in determining the scores in these tests. And this is more about test-taking than actual education. That is exactly right. And, but you know, what the University of California is arguing is, hey, our members of uh, Latino and low income and first generation to college students have never been higher. So they say that this is a, um, you know, not true at all. Um, And they gave numbers to show that they at the University of California actually admit more students of color and uh, more low income students than, you know, the top elite schools combined. So, um, and they pointed to, to uh, access like the Khan Academy to say, you know, students really can have access to the test prep if they want it. Right. But again, it brings up that question about then are these tests measuring actual achievement knowledge or are they measuring test prep? And that's when you get to the nub of probably what teachers are concerned with. One of the other things that goes on here is let's set aside the the money for uh, prepping for the SAT and the tutors and the books and all of that. Set that aside for a moment. This is part of a larger question here because there are things coming up going back to your sitting and as health editor at the Chronicle now, like the availability and affordability of broadband with so many kids trying to work from home, that has become another factor where kids of lesser means are having problems. Sometimes it has to do with the economy. Sometimes it has to do with where you live. If you're in a rural area or someplace where, you know, you have to, as some kids are doing, park in the Taco Bell parking lot to get Wi-Fi, this is another problem with economic status and education. Absolutely. I was going to say about that Taco Bell parking lot, because that's what we're seeing. I mean, you can't even go to the library now. And so uh, there is a great inequity. Um, I was covering the opening of UC Berkeley the other day, and they had to scrape together, you know, millions of dollars to try and get um, laptops to all the uh, students who don't have them and don't have you know, broadband. So it's a tremendous problem and far more so at the K-12 level, high school, people prepping to go to college um, than at the college level, because um, what I've found is that at the college level, you know, the faculty uh, never really like online education as a, as a rule, but they approach it like a, um, you know, like a research project. How are we going to redesign our classes? How are we going to get access for the for the applicants? But at the K-12 level, it's just uh, a horrible problem. So many students don't have access. Final thing, Nanette, I'm seeing kind of a bifurcation through COVID and also just the cost of college education, but the COVID situation seems to have exacerbated this, where there's 
there's this divide now on how families are approaching higher education. You have well-to-do parents, and sometimes not well-to-do parents, just figuring, I've got to spend the money, spending money on things like SAT tutors. And of course, in the most extreme cases, bribing people to get into elite schools. That's been in the news. But at the other end, you have more parents and kids realizing nobody cares what school you get into except, you know, your social set. The school you graduate from is the only one on your diploma. So two years of community college and then transferring eases pressure on the kid, saves tens of thousands of dollars for the parents or for a student loan and has exactly the same outcome. You know, so interesting that you should say that because more and more uh, students and their families are realizing this. And we're seeing it a lot in California where the community college system, the California State University system and the UC system, University of California, are all sort of in a system together, working um, very much together and having this strategy to have more students um, go to, to low cost community college with help from the University of California, they're collaborating to try and get the courses to, to uh, easily slide into one another so that we qualify. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the there's been so many for-profit colleges that have attracted students for years, and those courses do not qualify you uh, for a University of California or for very many higher education. So then the question is, why aren't more students going to the community colleges? And, and now I think it's something that um, students are realizing that this pandemic has um, made very clear is, is a really good choice for students to go public. Nanette Asimov is higher education editor and acting health editor as well for the San Francisco Chronicle during the COVID-19 crisis. Nanette, thank you so much for spending the time with us. A pleasure. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Here's something that is either scary, necessary, or just an interesting statistic. Because of the money being poured into the economy and the fight to keep the country going during the COVID-19 outbreak, the nation's debt will nearly equal the entire amount of the nation's economy. This means if every nickel and dime produced in our economy this year went to do nothing but pay off the national debt, it would just barely do the job. And that hasn't happened since a very different battle, which was World War II. But what does that figure mean for America, and how might we be changed forever or even a little while by it? CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger is with us. Jill, good to have you with us. Is this an interesting statistic or meaningful for our lives? Well, I always think when you go to something brand new, new record, new milestone, that that is interesting and noteworthy. Um, It's not surprising per se, because... Look, we just went through a cataclysmic downturn in the pandemic-laced economy, right? March and April were horrific. And we now know that there has been sort of a twofold problem that contributes to the debt deficit problem. One is that when all these people lost their jobs, they started stopped paying taxes. When companies stopped charging money for goods and services. They stopped paying taxes. So the amount of money the government takes in dropped dramatically. And then the amount of money the government spend, the more than spends, went up dramatically because of the CARES Act, the $2.2 trillion. So you put it together and that's why we see the government debt basically 
surpassing about we won't it won't happen just yet but it's about to surpass the total value of the whole economy in the next fiscal year okay and there's something else that we should mention here whether it's politically popular or unpopular to mention it that tax cut of one and a half trillion dollars of that kind of took away some of i guess the margin for error here when something like this might happen. That's precisely correct. I think that many of those in Congress who voted for the 2017 tax cuts um, have to really look themselves in the mirror and say, hey, you know, we contributed to this, right? Because um, that increased government spending uh, in in the form of those tax cuts really caused the debt to start to rise before the pandemic even began. But obviously things went on sort of turbocharge over the last six months. Which brings us back to how important is the debt. Back in the day, uh, Senator Warren Rudman, Republican conservative, and two Democratic liberals uh, who were senators, Paul Simon and Paul Songus, used to talk about this all the time, the national debt. It was their passion, and their fear was interest on the debt would crowd out spending on anything else, whether it be the defense programs favored by Rudman or social programs favored by Simon and Songus. And part of the, the feeling there, part of the economic theory for ages was that if the government borrowed too much money, it was going to be a terrible credit risk. Investors are going to demand more interest, and then you'd get this horrible spiral where we'd be paying higher and higher interest on the debt, and it would just be unpayable. Except interest rates have remained low. Has that whole theory gone out the window? You know, it's fascinating because I grew up with that same theory and anyone who grew up at a certain time was taught economics and this crowding out idea and future inflation and higher interest rates. And it all seemed pretty precarious, which is why everyone wanted to avoid uh, a ballooning national debt or deficit. But, you know, there has been a new theory of monetary policy and fiscal policy that has emerged in the form of modern ready for this, modern monetary economics or modern monetary theory, MMT. And this is a somewhat of a new founded twist, which basically argues that countries can carry larger debt loads than previously thought. And that as long as you had an active federal reserve or central bank that could react to inflation when it did occur, that the, the fears over debt and deficit were unwarranted. Now, the big problem is we haven't really tested that and no one really wants to test it. So it may be true and MMT might be kind of the most brilliant thing in the world, or it could be something where we could see the whole economy kind of crash and burn with a theory that is unproven. So here's what I what, what I understand from economists, and that is that the debt and the deficit rising right now is completely understandable and explainable that there is likely to be some reckoning in the form of higher taxes down the road and that the nobody really wants to talk about that in the middle of a recession and certainly not in the middle of a pandemic-induced recession, but that this really does probably call into question how this country plans to address its balance sheet in the future, especially as it it pertains to social safety nets like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. We'll have more about the American economy with CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger coming up in just a little bit. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger about the American economy. The debt and the deficit rising right now is completely understandable and explainable. That there is likely to be some reckoning in the form of higher taxes down the road and that the nobody really wants to talk about that in the middle of a recession and certainly not in the middle of a pandemic-induced recession, but that this really does probably call into question how this country plans to address its balance sheet in the future, especially as it, it pertains to social safety nets like Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. You you bring up those programs, and it's important here because one problem, because our immediate problems are so great, one problem few people are talking about at the moment in the long run may be more important than the debt, is that because of lower tax receipts due to unemployment during the virus, FICA taxes paid to the government are down. Medicare taxes paid to the government are down. The new estimates on Social Security imply the fund will be in trouble by 2031, which would mean they will either have to lower benefits, raise FICA taxes, or some combination of the two, and that Medicare's hospital insurance trust fund may be in trouble by 2024 instead of 2026. Uh, Unlike uh, the Social Security number, which still sounds like science fiction to a lot of people, uh, 2024 is, is going to be within the... Well, the election year of uh, the the next presidential election year. So I hate to think four years from now is right around the corner, but it's right around the corner and we're going to be facing something with Medicare. I think that Medicare has always been the much bigger problem. And the reason is that, as one economist explained to me once, that uh, essentially Social Security is an arithmetic problem. There is, as you said, there's not that many ways to slice and dice this. So maybe we'll raise the social security wage base. You know, maybe it with you know goes up to one hundred and fifty thousand or two hundred thousand. But the, the the amount on which you pay FICA tax, so that amount could go up. The actual tax could go up. So instead of six point two, maybe it's six point three for both the employer and the employee. And you know, and maybe we do have a slightly longer time before you can claim benefits. That's a math problem. Easy peasy, right? Well, Medicare is more of like a calculus problem because the cost of healthcare rises at an exponential amount on an ongoing basis, especially with an aging population. So I think that the Medicare program is the one not only we need to focus on because we it's because it's sooner it's because it's a bigger problem because it's much more difficult to manage this program as well as medicaid with the millions of people that are already receiving this benefit and it can't just disappear overnight so when i talk to now financial planners they are saying to their clients hey we think taxes are going to go up substantially in the future that's why they are very clearly focusing on their clients and saying you got to put more money away in the future cuz taxes will be higher even when you do retire so i think that you know it's it's really a misnomer to say social security is going broke it's just that the surplus is getting drawn down and that that trust 
is going to be depleted, as you said, you know, 2031. Uh, but after that time, the system does pay out about three quarters of promised benefits. Medicare actually is a much bigger problem and a scarier one. Yeah, a scarier one. And it has political ramifications, too, because this is rarely talked about when we talk about Medicare for all, just plain old Medicare is kind of, you know, like uh, looking for light at the end of the tunnel. But right now, it just seems to be an oncoming train due here in 2024. Yeah. And let me just pop Medicaid on top of that, because the Medicaid is the country's largest government health care program, and it covers, you know, more than 70 million Americans. And there will soon be many more people who are on Medicaid after the pandemic, because they'll have no health insurance and no income, and they will qualify for Medicaid, um, either through the Affordable Care Act or through the Medicaid program. So, I think that these are frightening numbers. Um, and it's a strange thing because even the the most conservative folks that I speak to simply are unwilling to have this conversation amidst the economic downturn that we've just experienced. But I think whoever ends up in office next is going to have a big problem that 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 he is going to have to manage. And this is something that um, nobody wants to pay more in taxes, but these are programs that have been quite successful and they're quite popular. Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid have been very successful programs that take care of people who are older and people who need assistance and retirees and those who are poorer. So I think that these are programs that are well worth beefing up. It's a question of who pays the price? And isn't that where the politics really starts to get interesting? Final question. We've mentioned unemployment. So let's talk about that. Whatever weekly or monthly unemployment numbers are, and people look to those thinking, okay, this is like either getting better, worse, or, or this is telling us something. We've got like long range parts of this. There are, for instance, people still working, considered employed, but they're you know, in the midst of liquidation sales at at big chains that have gone under, you know, department store chains, restaurant chains. We're talking about thousands and thousands of workers. We're talking about, you know, airline employees who were furloughed. And we're now hearing from the travel industry that a lot of those people furloughed are actually going to find out that they don't have jobs anymore. And, you know, many restaurants closing, even if this virus thing were to turn around quickly, um, there's more unemployment claims coming down the road just from what's already happening, the full effect of which we may not see for a few months because, again, people, even at companies that have said, hey, we're out of business, are actually still working through the liquidation sales. Some of those go into, just from the ones already announced, go into January. So this is kind of like a steady drip, tortured drip. I I think it is um, important to note that the crater in the economy that occurred late March and in April, um, that that hole is basically starting to slowly fill up. But it was so seismic, it is so deep that it is going to take quite some time to get out of it. And, you know, estimates are kind of all over the place, but I think your point is well taken in that many of the temporary job losses or furloughs are likely to become permanent. I I don't know, maybe a half, maybe a third. It's going to be a huge number. And what we also know is that there is some some 
sort of academic research going on to try to project what this is going to be. And what I think we really know is that long-term, this pandemic recession is going to likely have a longer lasting impact on the overall economy and the labor market than even the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. And so we don't know how things are going to shake out. We're hopeful. We want things to get better. But I think that we should really buckle up for the bumpy ride that will obviously continue, not just through the end of this year, but for many Americans right through the end of next year, too. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Jill, thank you, I think. Thank you so much for being with us. (laughs) Sorry about that. I hate to give you the bad news. But, you know, when there's good news, we'll be there, too. Absolutely. We just need it straight. Thank you, Jill. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Last week, we took you inside the lab making the Oxford University-developed COVID-19 vaccine. On CBS News this morning, Gail King heard it is now being tested on an American who talked to CBS chief medical correspondent Dr. Joseph LaPook. 23-year-old Jacob Serrano is the first volunteer to be dosed in the U.S. with either the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine or a placebo. He has lost seven family members to COVID-19 and says he wants to be part of the solution to save lives, no matter the cost. I knew there was a risk because it's like it's a trial, but look at the amount of lives that we lost. And I just don't want that to keep occurring. I'd rather have us one step closer, no matter what it takes. Serrano was dosed on Friday at Headlands Gem Research Institute in Lake Worth, Florida. Immune response was very encouraging. Dr. Larry Bush is an infectious disease doctor and the lead principal investigator for this trial site. He says he's optimistic this vaccine is effective. In the phase one and two trials, the vaccine has been proven that not only do you get robust neutralizing antibodies to fight the coronavirus, you get a T-cell response, another arm of the immune system, to fight off the cells that do become infected. That's crucial in treating infections. Oxford University has been conducting phase three trials in the United Kingdom, Brazil, and South Africa. In earlier phases, there was no evidence the vaccine causes serious reactions. Headland's research says their focus is on enrolling members of the African-American and the Latinx community who have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. The numbers are pointing to that those groups of people becoming infected at a higher rate. And therefore, that's a group that would highly benefit from vaccination. AstraZeneca says it plans to enroll up to 50,000 participants globally and is planning to start phase three trials in Japan and Russia. The company expects to have late stage trial results later this year. Gail? We hope so, Dr. LaPook. But what's the significance of enrolling participants from all around the world for this? Well, a couple of things, Gail. You want to have a diverse population of people who are being tested, but also you want to be in areas where there's a, there are a lot of cases. The more cases there are in an area, the more quickly you'll find out whether the vaccine works, whether there's a difference between giving the placebo and giving the vaccine. I mean, think about it. If you give it in an area where there are no cases, there'll be absolutely no difference between people getting the placebo and the vaccine. And this is one reason why we don't know exactly when phase three trials are going to be, give us statistically significant results, because it depends on how effective the vaccine 
vaccine is and how many cases there are in the area being tested. Yeah, we all want a vaccine, but more than anything, we want it to be safe. So is this being tested for ki- on kids? And how safe is it for children if it is being tested on kids? You know, Gail, kids are not being uh, tested yet, and the definition of a kid is anybody under 18. But what happens is that once there's some signal of efficacy, of effectiveness of the vaccine in the adult trials, then they can go back and they can start doing safety trials in children. And then if those go well, they can actually look at the efficacy trials, those results in adults, as a sort of a bridge to getting a vaccine approved to children. There are a lot of steps in the way of that, but that's basically what's been explained to me about the process. So no children are being given it right now, but in the future, that could happen. This has been America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.